Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we launch your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, 21st century spacesuits made in Sydney. Metacosmos is a space technology startup working out of the Wolfpack Space Hub in Sydney. The founder and CEO is Kiriti Rambala. He has a background in engineering and technology going back 15 years in North America, Europe and now Australia. We spoke by Zoom and I began by asking him, why a spacesuit company now and why from Australia? I think that's a great question. I would say perhaps 10 years ago, if SpaceX or Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic weren't around, it would have definitely been a pipe dream. But right now, there's a lot of momentum across the globe, specifically after space started featuring in the whole defense conversation, being this tactical edge, everyone's kind of looking at space. So I think it's a great time to be in the industry as such. And why Australia? I think Australia is strategically well-positioned in, in Asia Pacific and all the allies currently doing all the work related to space technologies makes it a natural, I guess, destination for space-related activity. And you're seeing a ton of investment happening in the space of satellites or rocket launches and all of that. And I believe to diversify that economy, you need innovative ideas to focus on human spaceflight capabilities as well. And when you look at human spaceflight, there's a lot that you could do in pre-flight training aspects, which are related to underwater training. And I believe Australia naturally has a great water-based activity happening. And so I think that is what makes it exciting to, to have this idea and this company at this point of time here. And so how did you come to the idea that you should start this company to build spacesuits? Because of the market? Yeah, I think it's part of it is market, but I've I've been keen... I've been very interested in the entire superhero costume design ever since I was a child. So they were very exciting to watch on the screen. So that led me in the direction of actually understanding technically what goes behind making a costume. And then given the engineering background, I was always looking at ways in which you could make a functional superhero costume. So that was the underlying interest. But then on a uh, trip to NASA's Ames Research Center in 2017, I happened to have certain conversations with people there and got a little more insight into how the entire spacesuit industry was functioning and who built the suits for the moon missions in 1960s and, and what's the current state. So that's how things came together over a period of time. And then a lot of market research after that, working with consultancies to understand where the opportunities were led us to this point. And what are the problems you have to solve to build these suits, to design them and build them for all these different purposes? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, when you look at general industries, you can see them either being capital intensive or labor intensive. I think this is a classic case of being both. 
Uh, so when you have to solve a problem for the spacesuit, it's a multivariate problem. So you're looking at a host of technologies like materials, fabrics, electronics, and tracking the human performance inside those suits in, in space because there's space radiation as well. So these are all problems that need to be a part of that solution space. And um, you need to actually look at them in parallel as opposed to solving them one at a time. So I would I would summarize it as a multivariate problem space that you need to solve. So you've got to keep someone alive when the pressure can vary, when they've got gases coming in and gases coming out, and they're going to be in the suit for a long period of time. So that's a lot of different things that you have to handle all at the same time. That's correct. In fact, if you divide the entire spaceflight life cycle into pre-flight, training, in-flight, and post-flight, there's a lot of work that we need to do on the astronauts when they come, when they come back to Earth because of the adjustments that the body is making to gravity conditions. So there's a lot that happens on the body, which means you need to track their performance throughout the cycle, and the biomarkers need to be in check all the time. And this is to ensure that there is a proper functioning of the vitals, and at the same time, they're also performing at their peak, because in microgravity, as you could imagine, the body functions might be all over the place, the blood flow might be in a different direction. And so Putting it all together is a critical task, but at the same time, it needs to be done with utmost efficiency. So you've got the situation where NASA was reusing its old spacesuits for a long time to the point that women astronauts didn't have spacesuits the right size for them. They were all too big. But that's starting to change now. That's correct. In fact, one consistent feedback we receive at all the um, the conversations or conferences we go to is, are you designing things specifically for women? Because, you know, the old suits were just meant for a, um, a certain target group. Um, so what we're now trying to do is take a different design approach so you could cover a larger portion of the demographic. Uh, and I believe NASA is also now awarded a contract for their next generation of Artemis spacesuits, which will be taking those designs into consideration that can also accommodate female astronauts. So it's very much a conversation right now for most of the design companies to ensure that the sizes and the form and the functions are all catering to a larger group of people. And you were talking about the biometrics, reading the health of people, all the different vital signs, all the things that are happening with them. Does that require a more modern sort of software approach than NASA might have been taking in the past? I think there is a conversation now to rely on consumer technology. Let's just say everything they do is probably in the government space. And they've realized that there's been lots of technological advancements in the consumer space that they'd like to adopt into their designs. So I believe back in the day there was, well, the state was leading all the technological development, but today the private space has actually outpaced uh, the R&D uh, investments. So they're producing more breakthroughs. And so I could definitely see more of a transfer, tech transfer happening from the civilian or the commercials uh, technology space into like what NASA is doing. So that's how they're putting out more procurement calls, trying to engage with the industry, 
to ensure that the best of the tech is actually a part of their roadmap moving forward. Uh, and they're also doing a lot of systems integrations, which are aligned with what's happening in the world. But back at the day, I think it's probably only them building these things. It was hard to assess if there was something uh, better outside. But at this point, they do understand that there are some areas where there's probably more happening outside as opposed to what's happening inside their, I guess, programs. Would some of the technologies that you're going to be building into your suits come from areas like sports science? Definitely. I think biomechanics is at the heart of everything that we do, which is essentially trying to understand the joint torques, the mobility of the astronaut inside the suit, and the energy expenditure patterns, all of which, if you if you see, is also a uh, an area of focus for the athletes because they need to be extremely agile and... and um, conserving their energy when needed and be able to perform at the peak at relevant times. So management of your energy would be critical. And so that way, we're definitely looking at a lot of principles that are very closely aligned with sports biomechanics. And there must be a lot of competition. When I went looking for your company online, I came across references to human aerospace in Sydney. Are are they connected to you or is that competition? I would say definitely not connected. So they're they're performing, again, from the information that I have on their website, I believe they're looking at in-flight part of the entire space life cycle. And they've also received a grant, I believe, before we registered. So they've been doing some research work before we came in. So I do not have much information on their design, but yeah, they could be a natural partner as well if they're looking at certain aspects across the life cycle. But in in-flight services, perhaps they have a different focus area is how I understand it at this point. Understood. I was looking generally around. I know you launched in Sydney and unfortunately I missed your launch. But when I was looking around, I saw that even the contractors that NASA has recently put through for the International Space Station and Artemis, they're working together. There's long-established companies and new companies. And so it's a space where there's a lot of different, I think, specialities and different degrees of expertise that need to work together. So do you see that for your company? Definitely. In fact, we've been a part of some of the procurement calls of NASA for the Artemis program just to understand the complexity of their procurement needs and how the supply chain is evolving. So there's an opportunity for us definitely to be a subcontractor to a contractor in the U.S., given the way things are structured. So we could play a role perhaps in some of the subsystems to begin with. And that's how you could start building your way towards building bigger systems for NASA. But the need is changing as we discuss, and they're looking at new technologies every six months now, which means there's an opportunity for new people to get in at different points of time. And I believe it's going to be a systems integration from NASA's side. So they might be looking at a fleet of suits in the future so they could run their tests and decide which ones will actually make it to space because there's a long testing process as well that new suits would have to undergo. And so there would be some competition there for looking at multiple technologies and multiple designs. And I expect you've had some interest from the Australian Space Agency. Yes. So we've been a part of some programs that were run in collaboration with CSIRO and the Space Agency. And we've also had some interaction on 
what is the roadmap up until 2030 and if human spaceflight would be a part of it. I think they're actually in the process of building that strategy and getting a sense of where the market is today. So it's a great conversation that's currently happening. And I believe we will hear more about their plans for uh, human spaceflight in the, in the future. And have you got any contracts that you're able to talk about? So in terms of funding, we recently received Investment New South Wales MVP grant, and there have been a few programs related to defense that we've been a part of, mostly on the side of engaging talent, PhD students from Australian universities who uh, join us for short-term projects to solve problems. So that could accelerate our product development timeline. And we're preparing for more defense engagements because they kind of test out technologies on land and water and in air, all of which we would need as capabilities as we put together the spacesuit. So we've got a few in the pipeline as well, but that's the extent of our, our engagement at this point. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. This is a story of the future, but not the very distant future. It is a story that might have taken place the day after tomorrow. Like all stories of the future, however, its beginnings lie far back in the past, as far back as the first man on Earth to gaze at the stars and wonder if someday, somehow, he might travel to them. Travel through space. Sometimes mishaps occurred, and men paid for them with their lives. But the work went on. And how long has Metacosmos been around? So we've been doing a lot of research for about two, two and a half years now. So mostly in a private mode, uh, because you needed to understand the feasibility, the market uh, opportunity, and a patent opportunity as well. So uh, we were advised by the patent attorneys to to wait until we were really sure about how the tech would develop. And, and so uh, once that was ready, we could move into the public domain. And so, uh, yeah, that happened recently after we've made those patent applications and put the entire design work uh, in the public domain. And it's a very public sort of thing if your spacesuits fail. Is that a special consideration of risk for your company? I would say so, definitely, because, you know, there's two aspects to how you look at the quality uh, of the suits. So one is you let the customer run their tests. So you're actually going with what their ideal quality standards are. So in this case, let's just say NASA has its own testing practices and you give them your suits and they put it through all the tests and they qualify a suit as space worthy. Um, and then it fails after that process, then you probably understand, um, you know, the actual reasons which would have been environmental or something that's not been factored in during the testing process. However, if you're exploring certain commercial options, um, then there is more room for that kind of scrutiny and backlash if your suits have failed. 
Uh, but I think it's important for people to understand the entire design and testing process so they have an understanding of how these things were built. Um, having said that, I think a failure is a real possibility and you need to be prepared for uh, answering questions on where exactly the failures were and the measures that you could take to enhance the um, the safety in the future. Uh, but it's always going to be a conversation of um, the number of people that you've trained in the suits and the amount of uh, quality assurance that you've actually um, deployed in the process. So that could eliminate the uh, the failure as much as possible, but uh, there's always um, that risk of failure. And when do you think you'd be producing your first spacesuit? So the way we look at it currently is a stage gate process. So you need to build suits for land, um, suits for water, air, and then you take them into space. Now, while we do this, we're going to be actually building certain subcomponents that would be functional for the long-term uh, spacesuits. And this process could go anywhere from 24 months to 36 months, uh, depending on, again, capital investments and access to some of the uh, testing uh, environments that we're looking for, for instance, radiation or vacuum chamber testing and all of that. And the quicker you get access to them, the faster the development would be. But I'd say about 36 months. And NASA traditionally gets fighter pilots to become astronauts and, and even just test these things. In Australia, who would you have testing your suits? So we are also planning on working with Air Force and fast jet pilots. I think that's a natural demographic that you'd want to look at. And we're now trying to see what kinds of suits they currently use. And if you could upgrade them to a version of our suits for R&D purposes. So there's two aspects to how you could do those tests. One would obviously be your innovation programs where you pitch the solution as an R&D product where you're trying to collect data. And then you have the operational testing, which would then mean they'd take it out into the actual conditions and test it out and tell us where the points of failure could be. But yeah, we'd definitely be looking at some Air Force collaborations in the future to test out those prototypes. Can you give us any sort of an idea of some of the interesting technologies that you're building into the suit, whether it's some of the fabrics or some of the telemetry or, or what sort of things are you putting into it? Yeah, so fabrics is one, definitely. So fabrics would be at the core and then and we're also looking at a hard some of those hard structures could be your helmets, could be wrist connectors, could be your life support systems at the back, which would require a lot of electromechanical systems to work in uh, tandem with the rest of the uh, the suit. Avionics, essentially everything to do with your telemetry and how data is transferred back and forth to the ground stations and, and actually on the suit as well. So these would potentially be the supplier landscape for us. So we're currently working with some partners and we're also looking out for other partners in domains that we've not previously looked at. For instance, someone from the military who's done something for ballistic properties and fabrics would be a great, I guess, partner for us because they've already run certain tests in certain fabrics. And then the same thing with electronics. If people have put electronics in space, they understand the radiation hardening capabilities required to shield the electronics from radiation. Those kinds of like companies would be very helpful to collaborate with because they understand the grade of electronics that could go on to the suit. And so, yeah, we'd 
broadly classify them as fabrics, materials, and electronics. So you talked about the radiation hazards. So for the listener, it's different when you leave the atmosphere, the radiation that astronauts are exposed to. Can you explain what that difference is? Yeah. So space radiation could come in multiple forms, but by and large, you can conclude that the electronics that we have here on Earth are not meant for uh, those kinds of conditions because of electromagnetics uh, being uh, tampered, and there's a lot of impact with temperature variation as well. So you need the right amount of shielding, like any other object or activity or, or human in space. So the electronics tend to not function, and then when they malfunction in space, that could lead to disastrous consequences. So what we need to do is do a ton of um, radiation testing on those electronics here on Earth, and also look at the ideal enclosures that they could be placed in to shield the electronics from the radiation that might be hitting them. And this changes as you move up, obviously. So once you're in outer space or some kind of low Earth orbit, you start noticing these things. And so there's lots of protection usually given to those electronics. And after seeing cars like the Teslas with lithium batteries catching fire, the question is, what are the safe power sources that you'll be using in the spacesuits? So we're, well, battery management systems is something that we have collaborated with a team at QUT. So there was a PhD researcher who's worked on a battery management system for us to understand the heating patterns of the battery packs specifically. And if there is an input that we could send to the astronauts so they can cut off the operations when they notice certain heating trends. So, well, there's always these need to put in more technology inside things, which leads to a pressure on how much battery power you'd want to put into those designs. But that would mean certain risks, as you know, you know, things could heat up and electrical failure is a real possibility. So whatever you're seeing with Tesla, perhaps is, I'd like to believe is a very isolated case that's being reported. What we'd like to do early on is to have all those measures. And if you know what the limits are, you perhaps want to operate at an 80% of that limit but not actually go for the limit. Because once you have electric failure, it's very hard to stop the chain reaction inside the suits. So uh, a real danger, but measures are being taken during the design phase. Listen next week for part two of my interview with Kiriti Rambala after my tour of the Metacosmos spacesuit facility. Boy, just look at those stars. You almost feel as if you could touch them. Do you suppose we ever will? Will what? Oh, reach the planet, the moon, space travel. Ooh, no doubt about it. Oh, maybe it'd be a long time before we reach the planets. They're pretty far away. But a space station first, and from there, on out to the moon. That's on the way, and, and maybe quicker than we think. Why, Dad! You're the last person on Earth I'd expect to believe that. Well, why, Betty, your father's not entirely lacking in imagination. That's what I mean. Imagination, science fiction stuff. Dad's always been one for the facts. Well, I know one thing. If they do build a space station in my lifetime, or send a ship to the moon, I'm going to be ready to go. I'm going to have my name on the waiting list. Are you? Going to go? Sure. No, no. I mean, are, are you going to be ready? I don't see why not. It's going to take someone with a spirit of adventure. I still say, are you going to be ready? 
I don't know what you're getting at. The facts, as Betty says. The fact is, adventure will be just one little part of it. Right now, you and Betty will have to get ready for the other things it'll take. Like what? Like what you know, what you understand. What courses are you taking next year? Oh, my schedule's already made out. In the ninth grade, you have to take mathematics and English and history. No science? Well, I had my choice of taking general science this year or next, but I put it off a year. Then you put your trip off a year. How come? <laughs> What's the matter with you, Betty? <laughs> I was just trying to imagine the look on Mr. Bristow's face if he thought somebody had enrolled in general science just to get ready to go to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> we are getting a little off the beam, aren't we? But only because we were talking about the moon. I could give you some down-to-worth reasons why I'd study science if, if I were the age of you two. Uh-oh. Here it comes. The facts. Go on, Dad. You were saying? Well? And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker, or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. And rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the Community Radio Network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits.
photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.